Samajana Turvandasha Janajana Salakaya Chakshun Militanyena Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha Panchakaptu Vyascha Kripasin Vivacha Petita Nam Pabanebio Vaishnavijanamo Namaha Good evening. We are going to continue uh, with an introductory study this evening like a preliminary grounding before we actually enter into an in-depth study of Srila Jiva Goswami's Tattva Sandarbha, the first of his six Sat Sandarbhas. Our lecture is primarily based on a recent English translation of the Tattva Sandarbha by Sachin Narayan Das of the Jiva Institute in Vrindavan and also uh, supplementing that with with a more broader-based presentation that was done by Swami Tripurari, which he also entitled Tattva Sandarma. But his audience, uh, as you can see by his writing, is, is he's trying to attract the Western intellectuals and theologians to, to Jiva Goswami so that they could... Uh, they can gain entrance into a depth of uh, uh, logical, spiritual understanding, which for the most part far exceeds anything that's uh, been presented by any Western philosophers. Uh, of course, we as Gaudiya Vaishnavas uh, look upon Jiva, Jiva Goswami, Srila Jiva Goswami, as the, the, the most profound theologian because he... He brings us into the heart of the Srimad Bhagavatam, which is uh, that scripture around which all of our understanding of divinity uh, manifests. So I thought we'd speak this evening on two things. We'd uh, discuss key terms and concepts that are used throughout the book, uh, Tattvas and Dharva. Uh, and the author has actually recommended that we we have a firm understanding of these concepts, so that when we come across them in the in the presentation, uh, both the the writing of Jiva Goswami and the commentary of the uh, translator, uh, Narayan Das, we know exactly what we're talking about. But I wanted to touch upon first little biographical information on Jiva Goswami. I'm sure everyone's heard a lot about him in relationship to the six Goswamis, but I think it would be good as a as a matter of uh, uh, appreciation to mention uh, the nature of his life. Uh, he is the youngest of the six Goswamis who were the direct disciples of uh, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. I guess we would say the five Goswamis, because Diksha-wise, Jiva Goswami took initiation from Rupa Goswami. He first approached uh, Sanatan Goswami, but out of humility, Sanatan recommended that he go to Rupa. So, the majority of the history that we get regarding Jiva Goswami comes from one book, uh, Bhakti Ratnakarna, in there, uh, 
and elsewhere it's mentioned that he is an eternal associate of the Supreme Lord in Vraj Bhakti. And uh, in that realm, uh, he is a Manjari. That is a young maiden who serves the loving affairs of Radha and Krishna. Vilas Manjari is his name in that transcendental realm. He is actually the nephew of Rupa and Sanatan, who were brothers to his father. His father was uh, Anupanwa, Vallabha. He died in an, at a young age, some think within a year or two of Jiva Goswami's birth. Uh, he died while he was on tour with uh, Rupa Goswami in South India. His passing actually is put forth as one of the factors which influ influenced Jiva to renounce fully his material life. Well, he's an eternal associate. He really didn't have a material life, but still. All of Krishna's uh, eternal associates who are coming and uh, engaging like sadhikas in sadhika deyas are putting themselves forth as conditioned souls and showing how one should execute devotional practice in a sangha of devotees so that they can advance in spiritual life. So by their example, which is especially in regards to the examples of the, in the lives, of the lives of the eternal associates, is... Uh, is extraordinary, so much so that one would think that they could never themselves uh, rise up to that level of uh, of complete detachment from everything material and uh, complete absorption in devotional life. So um, both his uncles, his uncles and his father worked for uh, the Muslim uh, ruler, uh, Nawab Hussein Shah, and uh, I'm sure that the majority of our audience here is uh, familiar with the fact that uh, all of the three brothers uh, gave up their government posts and took to spiritual life. And uh, this called, caused them some material difficulties, but still, by divine arrangements, they were able to, to pursue their spiritual practice and uh, abandon their worldly duties. Uh, in the government of the Muslim ruler. But it did not come all of a sudden. There was some determined effort on their part and some divine intervention on the part of others uh, to help situate them. Um, so Jiva Goswami immediately, his mother died and he wanted to join his brothers in Vrindavan. Uh, prior to that, going to, instead of going directly to Vrindavan, he went to Navadweep, and in Navadweep, he met personally with uh, Lord Nityananda, and upon seeing Lord Nityananda, he immediately recognized him as the Balaram of the Krishna Balarams, which he da daily worshipped in his life. He re immediately was able to comprehend his divinity and uh, uh, Nityananda was uh, so kind as to uh, welcome him and give him a personal tour 
of Vrindavan, the birthplace of Lord Chaitanya, the house of uh, Srinivas, Acharya. Uh, he introduced them to uh, um, Sri Chaitanya's mother, Sachi Devi, and Vishnu Priya, who cooked for him. Um, so in in that tour of Vrin, of Navadweep, he actually went to all nine islands. And uh, Nityananda Prabhu gave him instruction uh, to go to Vrindavan and join his uh, uncles. But uh, he recommended that he go by way of Benares. And in going to Benares, which was the seat of... of uh, uh, scholarly uh, schooling schooling in Vedanta different schools of logic there uh, Jiva Goswami became the, uh, a student of uh, Madhusudana Vishaspati uh, who was a disciple of Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya and there he learned all the different schools of thought, different logical schools of thought, all the various uh, Vedic traditions, and um, this prepared him for his, his, his work, his life's work. Uh, he quickly mastered all of this logic and reason, and he was able to employ that uh, learning later in life when he uh, when he presented his uh, treatise, uh, which of all of his literatures is considered the most significant, the Satsandarbhas, which is the uh, subject of our lectures here. Um, he arrived at Vrindavan at about the age of 20, um, and he took initiation from Rupa Goswami. During his life, he's said to have personally authored 400,000 Sanskrit verses. So he had a bit of, <laughs> he did a bit of writing there. Uh, his lifespan is approximated at around 85 years. Uh, but that's, the, his birth is not exactly known. Um, it's said that when Rupa and his brother, Anupama, met with Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu that Jiva Goswami was present. But most scholars put Jiva Goswami's birth the same year. So that would mean that he would have met with Sri Chaitanya with his uncles at the age of one. Uh, some say anything spiritual poss spiritually possible, and some says, say that he may have been born a little earlier. But it is recorded that he did meet with, meet with Lord Chaitanya uh, with his uncles. But then again, all these histories just speak of specific facts. And just like the Srimad Bhagavatam, we don't want to get overly absorbed in facts and miss the story that's and, the, and what's been meant, what we're meant to take away. Um, one interesting incident happened while he was in uh, 
a young man in uh, Vrindavan working with uh, under the uh, leadership of uh, of his uncles and of course first was his acceptance of initiation of Diksha and Sanatan Goswami as I said deferred to Rupa Goswami and he went to Rupa Goswami for initiation and Rupa Goswami tested him and uh, made him perform menial tasks and and just do day-to-day work for him uh, for a while before he actually accepted him as a disciple. Wasn't it like a year? Yeah, some some literatures say that, yes, yeah, some histories. Um, and uh, he passed the test. But uh, it came up a little later in his youth that... Uh, uh, he had another test to pass, and that was uh, Ruka, what is it? Rupa Narayana Sarasvati, who's the Digvijaya, the biggest scholar, or put himself forward as the biggest scholar. Uh, in India, he came to Vrindavan and wanted to... Uh, uh, he wanted to enter into a, an argument with Rupa and Sanatan and, uh, you know, because he wanted to be recognized as the greatest scholar in all of India. Well, the two brothers said, well, that's fine, you can be that. <laughs> he said, okay, good. He says, we don't need to argue with you. You're certainly so much better than we are. And uh, he gave them a... a uh, he w- they were willing to sign a certificate uh, Jayapatra certificate yes I've been defeated by this great s- scholar uh, Rupa Narayana Saraswati he is the best so uh, he also heard that they had you know they had a nephew Jiva Goswami who was also a great scholar and he said well I, I need to get his signature too so he approached him and uh, he said, here are your uncles, they've, they've signed over and, you know, signed over to the fact that I could easily defeat them in all, any argument of logic and reason and, and uh, I certainly know scripture more than, more than anyone and, and uh, this upset Jiva Goswami and he said, no, I'm not signing anything. Uh, <laughs> let's let's have a little contest here. So they set up for a seven day contest, and they began in their uh, their uh, arguments uh, to show which had the deeper knowledge. And at the end of the first day, uh, the uh, Digvijaya disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, in that way, uh, Jiva Goswami was able to to defend the he defend the honor and the dignity of his uncles some people wanted to see that as a fault in him that he was just trying to show off his scholarship but that was certainly not his nature um, there are other incidents where people tried to fault Jiva Goswami in different ways uh, one crazy story is that he threw 
the manuscript of Chaitanya Charitamrita in a well. <laughs> After, you know, Krishnadas Kaviraj gave it to him. There's no support for that any anywhere. But there's always, believe me, in this world, there will always be detractors no matter what your position is. Uh, there's also others that... Um, they they took to task the fact that during his time, due to the social climate of the day, he had to preach in support of Swakia, married relationships of the residents of Raj, uh, and preach in opposition to Parakia. And People find fault with him for that and say, well, how could he properly represent the lineage? Because he doesn't represent the Siddhanta of the lineage when it comes to the relationship between Radha and Krishna. Uh, but he had his reasons and uh, uh, we're fortunate enough to understand those at this time. But scholars through the years have brought this up as a testament to the fact that he... Uh, uh, he wasn't uh, all that he was cracked up to be in our lineage, just finding fault in some way or another. Uh, that he was arrogant in uh, in defeating the uh, the Digvijaya. That he was dismissive of Krishna Das Kaviraj's writings. That he was uh, spoke in opposition to the Siddhanta of the Sampradaya when it came to. Uh, the topmost relationships between Radha and Krishna and the gopis. So uh, we're not much interested in these these ideas of the naysayers. Uh, and factually, uh, who could who could who could possibly argue with with the depth of understanding and what he did? Uh, as in a foundational way uh, in service to um, the other Goswamis specifically um, he uh, it's said that he gave a spiritual revelation to the Muslim Akbar and in doing so received unlimited funding for the temples in Vrindavan uh, that when the Akbar left the garden where he met with Jiva, he said, uh, what, what should we do here? And, oh, well, my, we want to build these temples. So uh, the four, four major temples were built with that funding. That's fancy. Uh, and then later, uh, one of the Akbar's um, followers uh, provided funding and, and the land for uh, Radha Damodar Temple where Srila Prabhupada stayed and uh, Rupa Goswami personally oversaw the construction of that temple and both Rupa and and Jiva are their samadhis are at that temple so Prabhupada personally my spiritual master spent six years there before he came to the west so so it has some real significance in uh, uh, in our lineage 
so that's a, a brief sketch of uh, Jeev Goswami's uh, lifetime. Uh, we could speak much more. There's more there, but uh, not a lot. You know, uh, I think what we need to see is uh, more than what we could read and what's been taken down uh, in the histories of man uh, regarding his life is uh, is what he's left us his contribution in literature, which is which is astounding, incomprehensible, really, what he's given. And as we, you will see personally, you will experience, you will walk away from. This sun, this study of the Sundarbas with such an appreciation of how he's brought brought the theology of Gaudiya Vaishnavism into a modern context, even though his Sundarbas were written five hundred years ago, into a modern context where they can be appreciated by. Uh, by any sincere seeker of uh, of truth, so uh, that will become apparent, even as we go through just the Tatva Sandarbha. So we will continue now with the uh, the terms we started, touched upon them last time. Again, remembering that uh, we're studying Tatva Sandarbha, which is what it's. Uh, it determines what is, first of all, the nature of being. Be what is, what are we? What is, what is the nature of our existence? Uh, the ontology, the the nature of being, whatever we are. First, we have to know what we are. So, um, and in order to know what our being is, we need to make a determination as to what is the way, the proper way to arrive at knowledge. So that's epistemology. The nature of knowledge. What knowledge? What is the best? How do you arrive at a conclusion? And we touched upon in the last class, uh, just as by way of introduction, the fact that uh, we can see that your knowledge and my knowledge, if our determining is based upon the senses, is never going to be completely in sync. What you see as right, I may see as wrong. What you see as sweet and melodious, I may sound, may may see as uh, simply a bunch of noise. Uh, certainly today, <laughs> I thought we had music as, as youths. You know, the Beatles, and, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, and so many poet musicians. And then I see or hear a little, just a touch of what's out there today, and what I thought, what I thought, we had the sweetest music, and what's listened to and appreciated today 
I can't even, I have no appreciation for and no ear for whatsoever. It sounds like noise to me, just as our music, the melodies of our age, the sweetness of that music of our age, sound like noise to our parents. How it could, I have no idea, because it was the best the best. I mean, they didn't have the Moody Blues. They had, you know, who? Frank Yeah. Perry Como. And so. So, that is what Tatvis and Darba is going to give us, is a frame of reference for acquiring knowledge. Epistemology. Epistemological framework of understanding ontology, the nature of our being, that should, it will present, not should, it does present unequivocally uh, a logical presentation that allows us to approach such a serious question as who am I? Why am I here? Where did I come from? What is the nature of my being? In a very, very comprehensive and universally applicable system of acquiring understanding. So terms. I'm going to run through the terms again. We touched upon a couple of them. Achinta, transrational, un, beyond what can be perceived with the senses, not but not beyond what can be understood through a frame of reference. Uh, it can be there. There can be words that can explain the unexplainable in a way that we can understand it. Now, of course, from the Sadika's viewpoint, from the spiritual practitioner's viewpoint, this achinta is coupled with spiritual practice because they have an experience of understanding and grasping knowledge that is coupled with their practice. And Jiva Goswami makes it perfectly clear in his Mangala Charada, his opening six verses, six, yeah, six verses of Tatvas and Dharma, that we as Sadakas are the audience for his book. People of faith, people who are seekers of the truth, people who are seekers of spirituality. You are the audience for him. He's written this for you, and anybody else coming to this literature, you won't find what you want here unless that's your objective. So take your inquiries elsewhere. I don't have time for you. And you, don't, you shouldn't waste your time here. Because... The sadhaka in spiritual life, under some spiritual discipline, 
however great or small it may be based on his position at, at, and his qualification at a particular point in time, the sadhaka has direct experience of what we talk about when we speak about achinta. And what is that? That is, as he continues in his spiritual practice under good guidance and great association of the sadhus, what happens? His understanding deepens and what was inconceivable becomes understandable. Never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you, nor all these kings, nor in the future so any of us cease to be nahanyate, hanyamane, swaribe, nijayate, mriyate, vakadachin. All the simple, the simplest understandings of spiritual life, the sadhaka, generally speaking, for the most part, we come into the practice and those things are a given. There has to be some background there in spiritual practice from before that we can pick up a book of theology like Bhagavad Gita and immediately it rings true. Oh, yeah. I, I have no problem with that. I have no problem comprehending karma. I have no problem understanding reincarnation. And I, I have no real problem accepting God. And as we go through our practice, what is a chinta? incomprehensible even step by step as we go forward it becomes clear so as devotees we know what this means it's not rational but I read Bhagavad Gita when I was 19 and I read Bhagavad Gita again when I was 23 and 26 and and again and again, and every time I read it, what was inconceivable becomes more comprehensible. Transrational. It's beyond what's rationally there, but a deeper appreciation, the light bulbs start, that's dim, gradually gets a little brighter, and the concepts that are presented by the guru in the assembly of the devotees, in the scriptures, in the worship, all become clearer. What was once ritual becomes an entirely different thing as I go forward in life. So, achinta. So, beyond conventional logic and reason is what this phrase means. not beyond understanding, not beyond spiritual logic. Uh, uh, there's a term used, uh, sastrika gamya twam, known through revealed words of God and realized sadhus. And if we look at it, that's how these things are understood by us. Shastriya, the shastriya, Gamya Twam, Sastrika Gamya Twam. We, we see it through the eyes of Scripture and we realize it through the 
through the sound vibration coming from the, the sadhus, from the guru. And the unconceivable becomes enlightenment for us. Brahman, unqualified absolute, Bhambeti, Paramatmeti, Bhagyavaditi, Sabjate. What is the nature of unqualified absolute? Brahman, it means one spiritual, to the jnani, to those that pursue the path, uh, it means that the absolute is non-dual. There's no, no it, there cannot be any contradiction, there cannot be any duality in, in that supreme. Uh, Advaya jnana. So, devoid of any inherent potency is another characteristic of Brahman. The Brahman conception of the Absolute, okay, non-dual, substance, truth, is what? It has no inherent potency. No shakti. Right. Independent of shakti. Uniform plane of existence. Of spiritual substance. Um, it lacks distinctions. Beta. It lacks beta. No distinctions. So when we refer to Brahman, we're referring to that aspect of the Supreme as, as seen irrespective of his energies and his various potencies. He has no, nothing influence, there's no influence on that plane of absolute spirituality. Nothing can influence it. Uh, Everything in, in this realm is based upon influence, upon impressions. Everybody, everything in the absolute transcendental realm is also what? Based on influence. But when we talk about Brahman, we're talking about cannot be influenced. The second there's influence, that means that there is what? There's duality. That means there's a difference between one thing and another. Well, the second you introduce that concept, then that means you that's not Brahman. So, it doesn't allow for a chinta beta. It doesn't allow for inconceivable Right? A chinta beta distinction. That's what Brahman does not it just it doesn't doesn't have that as, as a character well it doesn't have characteristics because there's no difference. So when you talk about inconceivable difference distinctions between one thing and another that doesn't fall under the realm of Brahman. Then we go to Paramatma, the Supreme Self. Some great 
Transcendentalists look on the absolute truth as Brahman. Some look at on it as Paramatma. So Paramatma is generally seen by the transcendentalists as what? The Supreme Self, uh, an internal guide, a regulator, the creator, Ishvara, of everything, but non-dual in the sense that not influenced by the gunas of material nature. Making the gunas, producing the environment, yes. Being influenced by it, no. God, the supreme, the supreme Iswara, the supreme witness, the supreme in that way, but in no way influenced. When we talk about Paramatma, we talk about an aspect of the Supreme which is perpetually tied to material, the material manifestation and it's all that that entails, coming into being being for some time, dwindling and, and ending. So when we speak of Paramatma, we're talking about that aspect of the Supreme, which is involved with the external energy. So that's God in one specifically specific Leela. The Supreme in one aspect of Leela, which is called what? Shristi. Shristi Leela. He makes available a playground. His Leela is to make that available. Creation. Maintenance. Destruction. He is the shelter for all of the interactions between the Jivas, who are his parts and parcels, and his external potency. Then we come to the conception of the absolute Bhagavan. And we have all that's there in Brahman. We have all that's there in Paramatma. And then we come to what? The display of unlimited potency. All-inclusive personality which includes all that is Brahman, all that is all that is what is necessary to manifest and wrap up the material manifestation and more. Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam. Bhagavan. Unlimited potencies in everything. And that includes unlimitedly independent of any direct involvement with his energy, external energies. Um, fully endowed with Shurup Shakti, his own Shaktis. Uh, inconceivable in that it is 
Achinta Beta Abeda Tattva. He's both in everything that he is and all of the manifestations of energy that are coming from him and he isn't. He's both the energy that, that's coming, his Swarup Shakti, and the, the material energies that are coming under the supervision of uh, his aspect as Paramatma. And then he's also completely independent of all that. One interesting way to look at the Supreme Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam, Supreme Personality of Godhead, he's more than the sum of all of his inherent potencies. Whatever he is, he himself is more than all that, which is what we would conceive of being that Supreme Personality. Bhagavan. Then we come with one, to one other aspect of spiritual energy, the jiva. So what does it mean when we say jiva? It's an individual living being. Uh, it's an atma, it's a particle, spiritual life. Uh, and it's qualified within the material realm, which is the, the place where it manifests itself, it's qualified, it's given qualities within the material realm uh, through the application of, of an intellect, booty, the application of uh, ego, ahankar, false ego, um, the, the use of the mind to sort all that out, manas, um, the senses, and the physical body. That's, that's what constitutes a jiva in its active state. And its inactive state, it's, it's back merged into the Purusha avatars, Karna Dakshai Vishnu. Lying completely dormant, free of activity. Our co closest comprehension of that state of being. Again, remember we're we're talking here about tattva and the nature of being. So we know about the jiva in action. That's where we are now. So we we have some experience. And we would say, well, what is the nature of our being when we're inactive? You're saying we're inactive. There's a period of inactivity. What's our state of being like there? Well, it's a chinta. It's unconceivable. You can't conceive of what it's like. But for an idea of what it's like, imagine what deep sleep is like. It's that period where you're not dreaming, you're not awake. You're you're still existing, but there's you're at home, but you have no home. You're there, but you're not there. 
You have no frame of reference in deep sleep. You can't, you can't grasp what that's like, but that's, that's the non-manifest stage of being. We go to that place a little bit uh, on a daily basis. I guess that's to keep us balanced because we've got to get out of this place sometime. We're a conscious, we have consciousness, we're a conscious part of Paramatma, and we have a distinctive position when it comes to the potencies of the Supreme, and it's referred to as what? Not this and not that. Tatasta. We're not Shrup Shakti, we're not the Lord's internal pot spiritual potency, and we're not his external material potency. We're not either of those things. We're Tatasta. Somewhere in the middle. Let's get out of the middle. <laughs> it's a place of indecision. So, on with terms. Let's talk about Uttama Bhakti. Pure unalloyed devotion. What's a characteristic of Uttama Bhakti? free of the influence of the modes of material nature. So remember, we're just, we're, we're, we're becoming familiar with these terms so that the way we're seeing them is appropriate, that we have no misconceptions regarding them because they're going to be introduced to us again and again through our study of the Sandarbhas. And mixed devotion characteristic, it's mixed with the modes of material nature. Dualistic devotion, it could also be seen as. Devotion done as a means to an end. Dualistic devotion, devotion done as a means to an end. Rather than an end unto itself. A, the doer of that dualistic devotion sees a difference between himself and the object, Bhagavan. These are very subtle points. It's a subtle way of looking at things. Well, of course we're going to see a difference. He's God and I'm the devotee of God. But it'll come... It'll come out a little bit more when we look at the next term. And we'll see if we can get through a full uh, discussion of the next term, which is near guna bhakti. Devotion free of the gunas. Non-dual devotion. Non-dual devotion. As opposed to what? Dualistic devotion, which what? sees the service as a means to an end, not an, as an end in and of itself. And this, we've, we get, we've gotten a glimpse of this from the way Swami Triparari speaks on it. What is the way that we should see devotion? What is the way that Vishwanath Chakafari Thakur introduced us in his Madhurya Kadamani 
to devotion. What is its nature? What is its nature? It has a nature in and of itself, which is totally and fully independent. It's not something we bring under our control. It's rather something that controls us. So it's not that we do devotion. It's more devotion does us. If we're fortunate enough to what? Yadrichaya, somehow or other, come into contact with it through Krishna's devotees. And it's hard for us. Again, this comes back to the same point. We're in the world of doing and, and getting a result for doing. Bhakti is not that. It appears like that sometimes, but it's not that. So when we talk about nirguna bhakti, we're talking about having the proper conception of bhakti, that bhakti's doing me. I'm not doing bhakti. Bhakti's completely independent. There's nothing I can do to bring bhakti under my control. That's not within my capacity. There's me, Jiva, Tatasta Shakti, wavering between, between this side and that side, thinking that I can get to that side because I can roll the boat. But that's not really what's going on. Yasha Prashada, Bhagavat Prashada, we hear the verses. But do we really enter into the deeper understanding of what the Acharyas are telling us? Without the mercy of the spiritual master, no one makes any advancement. Any advancement. What's that word, any, encompass? Everything. Everything. <laughs> so, there is one thing that... Um, Actually, these definitions came in a section in the book where the authors pointed us. You understand these terms and concepts. And uh, he's given these purports, which I'm trying to relate to you in this class. I wanted to read what is said about Nirguna Bhakti because it's, it's quite revealing. So put on your seatbelts. One who holds to the egotistic and separatist conception of being a performer of devotion, a chanter of the name, a doer of acts of good to others and God, and so on, is caught in dualistic devotion, impeding this transcendental flow. When we abandon this separatist, identity, we become but instruments through which devotion itself flows unimpeded. The interactive screen upon which the divine name arises, the playground in which the drama of worship unfolds. So there's much to be said about adjusting our mentality from being the doer of devotion to being done by devotion from going from 
guna from dualistic devotion to nirguna, non-dual devotion. Well, let's go on to karma. What does karma mean? We think we, we know that one, right? Dualistic action. For every action, there's a reaction. Well, let's look at karma and niskarma yoga in relationship to uttama bhakti. If there's dualism at all, then it's not non-dual. It's dual. Goal-oriented or result-oriented action, even if it is niskarma, form, is still dualistic action. Action, even if it's without a desire for the result, if it's done on the karmic plane of activity, is still dualism, not nirguna, not nirguna devotion. Well, like, what's, what's, our, what's our natural question going to be here? Well, what do the sadhus mean when they say what? Yukta vairagya. Yukta vairagya. Well, isn't that vairagya? Well, what's vairagya? It's renunciation. renunciation. Is our goal renunciation? So, some very subtle points coming out here just in defining these key words and concepts into the, into the way and the manner in which Jiva Goswami harmonizes and puts thing in the, things in the perspective of Vedanta, Vedantic thought, which goes very deep into a very comprehensive understanding of Brahmati, Paramatmati, Bhagavaniti Sabjate. How can that non-dually, what's the non-dual aspect of devotion which makes it completely near guna and uttama, free from any kind of goal-oriented approach? A goal-oriented approach is not the approach of unalloyed Uttama Bhakti. Well, does that mean I can't have any spiritual aspirations? No. Because what is that spirit? What, what energy of the Supreme does that aspiration fall under? I want to be the Sarup I want to engage in the Sarup Shakti. Well, that's not... So then what's the distinction? Am I allowed to have that thought? Am I doing Bhakti for Bhakti's sake? Or Bhakti for my sake? So we have to we have to we have to come to a point where we deal with all this in our devotional life and have to understand in good guidance how to reconcile all these contrary things in the materialistic mind and come to a what a chinta inconceivable conclusion that is siddhantically correct. That's in accordance 
with the methodology and the application. But what we're going to go is we're going on a very deep ride now. We're going to go into the heart of logic. The logic that arrives at the conclusion that the supreme presentation and and source of understanding the nature of all being, not only the Gaudiya's Vaishnava's being, all being, because if we look deep into the theology, we'll see nothing can touch this understanding. So entering deep into that in such a way that we can engage in the practice and attain the goal with the proper conceptual understanding. Without the desire for attaining the goal? Coming, becoming free of any contamination in that desire, which would be make it dualistic. Yes. Which would, which would put it into the realm of what is not Uttama, not desireless. How do you do that? How do you come to that? It's only, it's only, that understanding is what? It's a chinta, it's unconceivable. But how is, how can we conceive of it? It can only be conceived when what? When coupled with what? The samvanda, the knowledge, the, the knowledge of the inner relationships is of no value at all without what? Abhideya, the practice. And the Abhideya is of no value without what? The goal of the practice. Where, where are we actually... So these things, they have to come together. And it comes together what? Inconceivably. How can we, as sadhikas, we're practicing, we're at this stage of anartha nivritti, we want to be at nista, at least. Let me get to nista where at least I can be steady day in and day out. Let me get there. What's the characteristics of Nista as given by Sri Shaitanya Mahaprabhu? Nadanam Najanam Nasundarim Kavitram Bajagadisha Kamani Mamajanmani. I have no desires. Going all the way up, and does that no having no desire end? The Satsandarbas of Jiva Goswami are to let us enter into this deeper understanding that synthesizes Sambandha. Abhideya and Prayojan, where we learn the proper conceptual relationships through Sambandha. We apply a practice that lets me, what? I begin to conceive of the inconceivable nature of those relationships where I can actually enter into what? A non-dual approach to what appears to be a, a, a dualistic situation. But Krishna, you can pick me up or, and embrace me, or you can make me brokenhearted by not being present for, before me. You'll always be my worshipable Lord unconditionally. Is that a desire? Is there any desire? That is like the epitome of desirelessness. Well, how do you reconcile that? So when we look at it and we hear this and you say, well, wait, you have to have a desire. How can you advance if there's no desire? Yeah, we, we have a desire. We have a desire to come to that level of desirelessness where love 
rules and conquers all. Uh, we just have a couple more terms to go through here, which I didn't make it to. But could you just say the karma thing again? I didn't... Which karma thing? <laughs> when we were going through the terms and we came to karma. Uh huh. Well, just that karma is dualistic action. Dualistic. Right? Yeah. We're acting on the plane of, of activity with a result. Niskarma is what? It's activity with a result without attachment, attachment to the result. Wanting to give the... But that doesn't make it still result-oriented. I work hard and then I want to give my guru the money. But I still work, so it, even in this karma, it's still dualistic. That's that's the point to be understood okay. there. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna.